This is the Mentor Shift Podcast, coming out every second Thursday with Mickey Fahair. Hey man, really good to have you here again. This is Mentorship Thursday. And I wanted to ask you that if you enjoy the Mentorship Podcast, please go to your provider, be it Apple or Google or Spotify, wherever you listen to us, and give us a, a good rating and give us a good review. It really helps us with visibility and it's very important to us. Thanks very much in advance. So welcome everybody and please join me in welcoming Tynan. And, um, you know, Tynan says that he is someone who is breaking away from the herd mentality. And you, you will hear that it's definitely true. You know, one of the things that I, I really love about your story is that, you know, you, you're kind of like a modern nomad and you don't really live in any one place, but you live all around the world. But I'll, I'll let you explain what that is. and. Um, you know, you were also, um, you were in 2013, the, one, one of the um, top 25 best bloggers, according to Time Magazine. You've written some books. You are a pickup artist. You go on where you used to be, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, you are a tea blogger. You go on cruises. And one of the other things which I'm very uh, jealous of is, you know, you've lived in an RV for around 10 years. And, you know, all of this is pretty unusual. And uh, I guess the question I wanted to start with is, how did you decide that you wanted to be different than the herd? Like, where does this all come from? You know, I, I don't think I really decided it as like an active, yeah. hey, I have been normal, I'm going to be weird now. <laughs> um, I, I think maybe the things that interested me have always been a little bit different than other people, or some of them have been. Um, but I think the big change for me was that I would do these weird things. People would tell me not to, and then they would work out well. And so I, you know, maybe I just got lucky that some of the first few worked out well, but I had this feedback loop of, I go do something weird that other people say is not going to work or nobody else has done. And then it actually works out well. And those people who told me not to were wrong. And so I think that trained me um, to kind of make my own decisions rather than, than let other people make decisions for me. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great. It's interesting because in, um, you know, I work as a coach and, and I know that you coach too. And, and one of the things that I like to say to people is, you know, just don't believe what I'm saying, try it. And if it's going to work out for you, you know, that's a reason to maybe keep doing it. If it doesn't work, you know, just drop it. So uh, that makes perfect sense to me. Now, you know, the other question I wanted to ask you is if you look at the definition of masculinity and, you know, obviously this is something in transition and maybe there isn't really um, a modern definition of what masculinity means today. But certainly if you work a lot with men, what, what you find is men tend to think that, you know, we have to be providers. We have to have, we have to own properties. We have to somehow show that we have the means to support um, we have to be in a very stable relationship. We have to live in, in a place that we call home. And a lot of the things that you do, you know, they pretty much challenge th those ideas. And so, 
you know, maybe starting with the idea of living in one place versus being a nomad. So, so what does that mean? And, and how did that come about for you? Um, so for me, I thought of myself as somebody who traveled a lot. And then Tim Ferriss came out with his book for our work week and I read it and I realized, oh, that's somebody who actually travels a lot. I think I do, but I'm not really living it. I'm just kind of imagining it, maybe going on a few trips. Um, so my good friend Todd and I, we both sold all of our stuff and we were fully nomadic for about nine months. I mean, we didn't, you know, I didn't have anything back. Maybe I had a box at my mom's house or something back home. Um, and so we did that for about nine months and then the following year did it for another six or nine months or something like that. Um, and so there are some massive benefits in doing that that I think anybody who travels to any degree realizes. Um, but there are also some downsides as well, which you also realize when you do it for long enough. So I think if you do it for about a year, you only feel the benefits. Do it for two or three years, you start to feel some of the, the downsides as well. Um, so now I've transitioned more towards, um, I have five or six uh, home bases all over the world. Um, and I live not so much with coronavirus going on, but generally I would split my time pretty well between. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the interesting things that you talk about is that if we take a look at uh, the list of the properties that you are involved in, you know, they are numerous, you know, there, there are many in Vegas and I know you have something in Budapest and per perhaps in Japan and, and other places and you own an island. And yet, you know, you talk about how little, investment all of that required so what's what's behind the fact that you could actually do that without making a crazy investment into these properties yeah i mean i think you know probably one of my more unique attributes is that if i decide i want to do something i'm really stubborn and relentless in figuring out some way to make it happen maybe sometimes it's not possible to but um you know the, I think the island was the first group property that my friends and I bought. So, you know, we all, there's about 10 or 12 of us and some subset of us own a share of five or six of these properties. Right. And um, for years I looked for an island and I wanted one that was easy to access, but was also cheap. And finally found one in Canada that was both of those things. And so, uh, you know, rallied my friends and got them to do it. I think a lot of where that comes from as well is having, just really amazing friends. I think uh, a lot of my success probably comes from that. But as I've seen other people try to imitate us in buying these properties, what I realize is that the maybe finding the deal I thought was the hardest part, but really the hardest part is finding the group of people that will do it with you. Yeah, yeah, I would have thought so. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, um, you know, yet, like, you know, when we think about it, it makes perfect sense. So why don't we own something together with, with a group of friends? But anybody who does anything like that, you know, like even uh, traveling with friends on a regular basis knows that, you know, when you travel, when you're together, things come up that you don't otherwise see or experience because living together, even if it's for a shorter period of time, is, is way more intense. And, you know, the differences come out. So how does it work to, to actually own a piece of property, you know? with a group of friends, like on a daily basis, what's the experience like? Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things that everybody predicted that it would be a disaster. Mm -hmm. We haven't had a single real argument. I, I, I think the only real, the closest we had to an argument is some of us wanted to get a goat for the Island to live there. And one guy was afraid of goats. Like literally <laughs> that's the biggest drama we've had. And it was sort of a joke. Um, and so I think that, 
I think some of that is that I just have really good friends in general, but I think a lot of it too is that, you know, that's clearly the first risk people think of when they think of this. It's like, well, what's going to happen with all these different personalities and, and, and people coming together? And so what I do with these properties is before I buy it, I lay out a very clear vision for what I want the property to be. And I say, hey, if, if that's what you want, then that's great. Come along with me. If, if you don't, that's fine. Maybe do your own or don't do it. So people are very like-minded in these things and they tend to want the same, same things. Um, the other interesting dynamic I found that I guess I didn't really think about is that the people with the strongest opinions are the ones who use it the most, but they're also the ones who do the most work. So the island is essentially exactly what I want it to be, but nobody's ever gone there without me before, you know, for seven years I've been on every single trip. Um, and then the next most frequent guy has maybe been on about half the trips. It's also very much what he would want it to be. You know, he and I kind of made that vision together. So it's one of those things that I think from, from the outside seems like it would be a disaster, but there's something about it where it actually works out great. Like the people who maybe have less input, they say, well, okay, we, maybe it's not exactly what we would have wanted, but we didn't do anything. We just show up and we can enjoy the properties. Um, yeah, it's been pretty easy. Yeah, and, you know, I'm just picking up on what you said that, you know, part of your success is the great friends you have. And, you know, part of the, the pleasantness or you know, the fact that this worked out is that this is a really good group of people and, and you, you kind of fit well. And so I'm just curious, how do you think about choosing friends right? Like, how does that happen? Do, do you have um, some kind of uh, tips or ideas as to how to get good friends? Yeah. Uh, you mean just in general, not just, just in general. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, I guess I have a lot of tips about it. You know, I've written one of my whole books is about this, this topic, but a, a few quick things I would say is that um, I, th I think a lot of people are afraid of being who they actually are. They try to mold the perception of them to be what they think people want in a friend. And what that ends up doing is it gives people sort of a poor choice of friends because everybody's trying to be the same. You don't really know who to be friends with. So I think it's a much better idea to sort of unapologetically be who you are, express the interest in the things that you are interested in. And, you know, if you have bad habits, fix them. I'm not saying everybody's perfect how they are. Um, but let people make that decision based on the facts rather than some weird version of reality you give. Um, I think that, so I was in this situation where I moved to San Francisco and it was one of those phases in my life where I really wanted to make a whole lot of new friends because I had just moved from Austin where all my friends were. And... So I was going, you know, to weekly board game things and weekly poker things and meeting all these people. And then I started working hard, which made it hard for me to hang out with people so much. And so it was the first time in my life where I really had to think about who I wanted to make time for and who I didn't, because before I just had enough time for everybody. And so I looked back and I thought, okay, well, who are my friends who I'm closest with, who I get the most out of the friendship, who I enjoy spending time with the most? And what are the traits that they have in common? And for me, it was ambitious people who were kind. And that seems sort of generic, but I guess I also mean kind in a way that they would put somebody else's interests above their own. Not, you know, not just kind when it's convenient to be kind. Um, and actually, I think in San Francisco, that's not the biggest overlap. And people who are both ambitious enough that they will, they're motivated, but also that they they'll take the time for other people. Um, and I found that almost all of my good friends had those two qualities or they all had them to some degree. So I used that as a screen. So I said, okay, 
of the people that I'm sort of acquaintances with where we could become better friends or just disappear, who has those traits? And I focused all my time on them. Um, and I found just being very deliberative, not just taking what you get, but thinking, who do I want to be friends with? And then being the proactive one and saying, hey, you want to go do this? You want to go hang out? Um, that worked well for me. And I think one other thing that I think is really key that you can get a lot of mileage out of is what I noticed is that if I could find two people who I thought should be friends and I introduced them and help them become better friends, that also strengthened my friendships with both of them. And it also created a robust friend group. Um, and so I think it's, it's a lot of times building a good friend group isn't so much about what you want out of it or even what you can give to another person, but it's the health of that group. Right. So creating like a, an ecosystem of friends where everybody gets something that they want. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That makes, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that I hear from people that, pisses them off is that, you know, at some point, you know, they realize in, in, in life that, you know, they have friends, but they are, everybody always seems to think that they are the ones that are suggesting the things, what to do, or they are the ones who call, who are calling. And so people get this feeling that, well, you know, in order for anything to happen, I have to be the one who initiates all the time. And that creates kind of like uh, an uneasy feeling. Uh, do you think that's true? So is, is that your experience that everybody thinks that they are the ones who start? I, I think that that's maybe a symptom of, of not a very good friend group. Not necessarily not good friends. I mean, they might be great people. But, you know, if I have a friendship with five different people, but none of them are that cl close to each other, I have to be the person initiating every time. Who else is going to get that group together? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, I also think that a good friendship or a good relationship in general means that maybe I give you a lot of A and you give me a lot of B. It's not that we're equal on A and B. So for example, maybe I'm the one who uh, gets the group together. So I'm doing the logistics, but you're the one who, you know, is the shoulder to cry on when somebody needs it or something like that. And I think that that's how you make a friend group greater than the sum of its parts is for everybody to sort of specialize. Right? So I wouldn't worry too much about that. I think people who are, are too worried about who I put in this, am I getting enough back out are probably not great friends and probably they need to work on themselves. Yeah. Makes sense. And I think, you know, this idea of being a kind person is exactly that, that I don't measure what I'm putting in. I'm just, I'm just doing my thing and what, what goes around comes around eventually. Um, and, right. and, you know, and friend, friend groups are, or should be a long-term thing. So, Maybe right now I have more capacity to set up meetups or put effort in, but maybe later I'm going to be busy and you're going to have more, more of the effort. So, you know, I think it's sort of like a good marriage. It's like, it has to be fair in the long run, but it doesn't have to be fair and equal every single minute because then, you know, you can't rely on the other person essentially. Totally agreed. Um, you know, as, as we are having this conversation, we are both sipping tea yeah. and, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things I find is tea is not perceived to be a masculine thing to do. Like pe people just don't like men have, like, I know more women that love tea, but for men, it's, it's kind of like a new thing to start appreciating what this is. So I'm, I'm just curious, like, how did tea come about for you and what is tea for you? You know, funny point on that, by the way. So I, I study uh, Japanese tea ceremonies. So I've been studying for a couple of years. And it's funny because I, I go to classes in, uh, in Tokyo and in Hawaii and in, in Vegas, 
And in Vegas, there are no other men in the class. In Hawaii, there's like one other man. In Japan, maybe there's one or two. So it's this very feminine thing. It's considered to be very graceful, very beautiful. However, it started by a man and it used to all be men. So it's funny how these things evolve, right? It, it, yeah, it goes back and huh. forth. Um, mm -hmm. But the way I got into it, I read a book uh, by Ray Kurzweil called Live Long Enough to Live Forever. And in it, he prescribes a lot of things for health. And it was the first book I'd ever read that it explained to me not just eat these things, but if you eat this, here's how it affects your body. Here's why it's good for you. Here's why it matters. And one of the things he prescribed was tea. And I never drank soda, or sorry, I never drank coffee. I never drank tea. And I thought, well, tea is, it doesn't appeal to me in any way, but I'm going to drink it just because it's supposed to be healthy. Mm -hmm. And so I was about to go on a cruise. So it was this 14-day cruise. And they had the worst tea you can imagine, stuff that probably neither you or I would drink now. And I drank seven cups of it every day, because that's what he said to do, seven cups of tea. And it wasn't good, but by the end, there was something pleasant about it. It was warm, I, you know, sort of a ritual, I look forward to it. And so I got back from the cruise and I said, okay, maybe I can find some better tea. And so then I found this tea from a site called Adagio, which has sort of mid-level tea. You know, it's leaves, it's in a big sachet, but you know, it's, it's not, you know, what, what you and I would drink now. And that was the first time that I drank tea where I thought, oh, this is actually pretty good. Um, and it was, I just got white tea. It was a silver needle tea I drank. Um, and then I moved to San Francisco and there's a very famous tea house there called Samovar. Um, and some, there were some, I'd seen some stuff about it online. So that was the first place I went and I drank one of their green teas. I think it was called green ecstasy and it blew my mind. I mean, it was a Japanese sencha. It had some matcha powder on it. And I was like, wow, tea can be really good. And so I started going there every day to work because I lived in my RV, you know, a small place. And I got to know other people who drank tea and they were all just amazing people. As I know, I'm sure you've had the same experience that tea drinkers tend to be really good people. Um, and I ended up becoming good friends with the owner of Samovar and he really taught me a lot about tea. Um, and I guess from there, you know, it's, it's been an endless rabbit hole, but that's how I got started. Love it. Yeah. Good story. I, I remember, you know, the first time I met you, I, it was in a um, tea shop in, in New York city and, and we were actually connected through a friend who was a, works with tea for a living and uh, has one of the probably most interesting tea shops in in uh, in europe in budapest I'm number uh, one or, in the world i think it's yeah. yeah you think so i think so i've been to a lot oh, yeah so jiao jiao in budapest if you guys ever go there whoever is listening you know check it out but you know the interesting thing about that day that we spent together because it was literally almost like a day you know we spent probably four, six hours and we moved from place to place. And so we, we, we weren't just in one place, but the point about tea is that you need to have time to enjoy it. And I guess the conversations are also different when you have tea because, you know, people who kind of dedicate themselves to the, to the experience of having the tea, they know that, you know, Oh, we're going to be here for a while and we might as well connect and listen and, you know, things will, things will happen. And, you know, time seems to be this scarce uh, resource in, in modern life that people don't have. And my experience of you during the day, you know, was that you seem to have a lot of time or you make time. So, so explain a little bit about, you know, time and tea and, and you. Kind of yeah. um, I mean, that's part of why I like tea as well, because I think back when I was single, every first date I would go on would be tea because 
if it wasn't going well, well, tea's done, pour it once, let's get out of here. And if it was going really well, you could drink tea forever. So one of the specific things I like about, and it doesn't make you, you know, you don't get drunk, you don't get too jittery like coffee. Uh, and it's sort of a journey, right? As you steep tea more and more, there's that whole experience. Um, the way I think about time is I think, I, I do think it's the most valuable resource. And I think that time with friends in particular is for me, one of the, the most valuable times I have, right? If you give me all the time in the world, but I'm off in a cave, great. I'm sure I'll have a good life, but it's not, you know, it's, it's a level down. Um, so, you know, I, I think there is some privilege in being able to say that where once you can make enough income that you don't need to work constantly, you can prioritize that sort of thing. But, but yeah, I think in terms of my priorities, I realize that what makes me happiest, what makes me feel like I'm growing the most is my, my ideal is traveling with friends or family. To me, that's the number one. If I can't have that, just time with friends or family, usually drinking tea. It makes perfect sense. I, I think, you know, one of the reasons why people tend to separate, so at least that's what I hear from a lot of men is, and not, not just men, but since, you know, this show is very much about modern masculinity. Um, what I keep hearing is, you know, people think about life in the following way, you know, th they're the things that I enjoy, you know, like I enjoy my family. I love my family. They're the most important thing for me. Um, I love my friends. They're important. Traveling, you know, amazing. I love it. You know, and then they will have something which is more like whiskey or wine instead of tea. But you know, th there's going to be this list. And then, you know, this kind of, um, you know, then, then there is a real life, which is, you know, I work, you know, 12 hours a day. And that's what I do, you know, because I got to provide, I, I got to make time to make money so that I can support my family and I can have that life. So eventually, you know, it becomes like an interesting choice. You know, like I either work and I live to work, you know, I, I love all these other things, but I don't have time for it. So how do you make money with things that you like? Because I understand that you've done a few things like that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just curious, what's the advice around that? So I think it starts with priorities. I think, you know, anybody can tell you what their priorities are, but unless if, you know, if you watched them for a week, And if you would guess based on how they spent their time and energy, what their priorities are, if that isn't the same as what they say, then there's a problem, right? So some people say travel is the most important thing, but they, but they don't travel, right? They spend their time and money elsewhere. So for me, I like, I know what my priorities are. And so I lived in an RV for nine or 10 years, right? I saved, I calculated, I saved $150,000 by doing that. Uh, and I loved it to be fair, but, but still like, you know, I was willing to not have a certain lifestyle that other people had because I, my priorities were spending time with people and traveling and an RV is fine for that. Right. Yeah. So I remember I had a big moment where I forget when it was, I mean, it must've been high school or college kind of time where I realized that I would rather be homeless than have a nine to five job. And like, really I would like, I, I, I cause I got, I just got to Hawaii. And I saw that homeless people in Hawaii didn't have it so bad. And I thought, okay, if my options were to have a nine to five job or be homeless in Hawaii, I would be homeless in Hawaii. And so that gave me a lot of freedom because I, I realized like, I'm not even going to play this game of trying to have a job because I know it's not what I want. So I'm going to try to earn my own income. And if it doesn't work, I'll be homeless, but that's better than the nine to five job. So I think 
and again, like I didn't have any support. I didn't have kids. So I get that there's, you know, and also I have an excellent family that like, I could have slept on my mom's couch if I had to, you know what I mean? Like, so I'm not saying everybody has that freedom always, but I do think that generally people have more options than they consider. And I think that's the, a big problem is people consider this very narrow hallway of options and they say, well, it sure would be nice if I could do this, but that's not on this, like this tiny little path. Um, you know, you could go get a house, live with a bunch of friends, save money, live with your parents, save money. Um, I think most people, their problems tend to be on how they spend money more than how they earn income. Even with a nine to five job, you have time to travel, you know? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think it's it comes down to choices and priorities. And I also agree agree about the congruence, like watching, you know, this is what he says, this is what he does. You know, well, it there is no overlap. So what's going on here? Yeah. Exactly. And I think it takes a little bit of courage sometimes. And not a ton, you know, but it does take some courage to say, uh, okay, here's the path that the world has set out for me. It's not what I want to do, so I'm going to try something else. Um, but I'm not sure I know anybody who's tried that and hasn't found it to be worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, much agreed. I, I picked up on, you know, you, you said a, a, a little while ago that, you know, when I was single versus now, and then, you know, now you talked about freedom and being single. So obviously, you know, if I, if I don't have a family or don't have a, a stable relationship, eh, it's easier to move around and it's easier to be, you know, more, more flexible. So what do you think about, you know, relationship and, you know, especially also because you've spent time being a, a pickup artist and, and, and this is something that you talk about that you got a lot out of it and it helped you to be who you are today. So I'm just curious, you know, what did you get out of it and, and how do you think about relationships today? Yeah. I mean, I think it's annoying when, when, People who are into pickup talk about, oh, it's so great for networking and making friends, like, and not acknowledging why they were in it, right? But the truth is that everybody I know who's, uh, I should say almost everybody I know who's involved in pickup to the level that I was, of course, it, it helps your dating life tremendously, but it actually, I think the bulk of the benefit is found outside of that because, you know, most people's perception of pickup is that it's about manipulation or it's about tricks and little things like that. And, and there is some of that, right? It's not zero. But ultimately, you're never going to be very good at it if you don't follow the core things, which are take an honest look at yourself, which is very hard to do. Learn what are your what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? You fix your weaknesses. And I'm not talking about like, oh, I like Dungeons and Dragons and that's nerdy, so I'm going to switch it. But maybe it's like for me, I, I realized I was a terrible storyteller. I would tell stories and literally girls would just turn around and walk because I was so boring, right? So you have to face that reality. Yeah. Um, and then you also have to understand what the other person wants out of the interaction, you know, pickups case, it's what the woman wants out of that interaction. So a lot of guys go in and they're trying to push their own agenda of like, Hey, you're so beautiful. Let's buy a drink. And they have this idea and they never think about why is this woman here? Why is she talking to me? What does she want out of this interaction? And if you don't learn that, you're not going to be very successful. And part of it is about understanding what women in general tend to want. But a lot of it also is about reading cues and, and being present with that person. And I think that talking about these sort of things sounds like a cop-out or it's like, yeah, whatever, you just wanted to get laid. But the truth is that that's what it is. Um, and so, of course, for me, it was incredibly beneficial for my dating life. I probably wouldn't be married now. 
or at least not to the, you know, the quality of woman that I'm married to, but it improved my relationships with all of my friends. It improved my relationships with my family. Um, I was so shy. I couldn't do any sort of public speaking in, you know, a group of five people now, you know, it's no problem. Uh, meeting strangers, it helps. So, it, you know, it, it helps you understand yourself and the world and your place in the world a lot better. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I never thought about it this way. Um, you know, I actually did have uh, uh, a client once and he was like um, a young guy. He was, I think, 21 and and he was into pickup. And so he's been trained and he's he's gone on these workshops and then he started practicing and he became pretty good at it. But at the time he came to me, he said, look, you know, I, I am so jealous. I keep, like I, I go crazy with my girls and I no longer know when I say the truth and when I, when, when I, when I lie. So he kind of lost it. And um, so, you know, I, that was basically the only kind of story that I ever heard deeper into uh, what, what is pickup. And, and obviously you can get lost in everything, but it's an interesting perspective that it could actually teach you it could actually teach you the opposite, as you say, which is to find out what the other person wants and then try to give it, give that to that person, which is basically the basis of effective communication. Right. Like, yeah. And I think most people do have that phase where it gets worse before it gets better. Right. Uh, because what happens is you realize that there are small things you can do that get big reactions out of girls and you become addicted to it because especially if you started off nerdy, which is how, I and many men started, you're just not used to having any attention from women. And you notice there are these little things you can do that will get big reactions and you become addicted to it. Right. And there's sort of, you know, there's the different phases of dating and that's a very early phase. You need to do some stuff like that, especially if you're in a noisy club or something, just to get, get the girl interested in hearing what you have to say next. Right. And that's when you can start showing who you really are. A lot of guys get trapped in that early phase of just like, uh, it's called flash game or something like that, where you're just sort of showing off mm -hmm. and you don't, it's, it's exciting, but it also feels very hollow and superficial. So what's, an, ex what's an example of flashing? So for example, let's say that you, you get into a group of girls and you subtly make fun of one in front of the other, and then you start to turn around. And of course, you, you know, you have to have some level of rapport, but you know, she'll, she'll say something you're like, wow, she always like that. And you start to turn away. Mm -hmm. Very often, one of the girls will grab you, be like, oh my God, she totally is. And if you're a guy who's been ignored by every girl ever, that's exciting, right? But you do that three or four times, and the girl's like, what's up with this guy? You know, there's nothing there. Um, so that might be funny. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, I wanted to ask you thinking about masculinity or modern masculinity or, you know, the identity of the modern man, do you think? it makes sense to ask this question because I, you know, I keep asking the question now um, all over the world. And, you know, I, I get two kinds of reactions. One is I don't even want to talk to you because you're so binary, Mickey, forget about this. We need to move beyond this. You know, you're, 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 you're like back 50 years. What are, what are you doing? The other kind of re response that I get is people say, well, you know, wow, I never really thought about this. You know, this is very exciting. Yes, we should define what modern masculinity is. So I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, how, how do you think about this whole question? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a quagmire these days, but, uh, you know, maybe I'm somewhere in the middle. Like, I think very obviously there are biological differences between men and women. Yeah. And that leads 
to a whole lot of differences. Men tend to prefer sciences and math. You know, we tend to be stronger. We tend to be less compassionate. There are clear differences that I think there's maybe some argument that nurture does factor in, but there's clearly a nature component as well. Um, And I think that understanding and accepting that, I think anytime you understand and accept how the world is, you're getting ahead in some way, right? You're you're better able to interface with the world. Um, So for example, I saw some video clip of some guy, a pickup guy actually talking to this group of, of women. And he said, you know, in general, women tend to prefer this. And this one woman said, well, I don't, you're totally wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, that's sort of a shame. On the other hand, I think that especially in this world where we have exposure to so many different things, it's very common for men and women to prefer to do things that are considered more feminine and more masculine. Uh, I like take, I like ballet. I take ballet class and I think it's a great way to spend time. I think if a woman wants to be, uh, a welder, for example, or something we would think of as a masculine thing. I think she should have every right to do that, have every form of encouragement and all that. So I think that, you know, there's, there's the truth that like, there are certain things that tend to be true. And if you make that assumption and have it as a loosely held assumption, when you meet somebody, you're probably better off. This guy's a man. I probably think he's going to be more logical in his thinking. I think he's going to be more interested in sports maybe, but if he shows me that he's not, I'll also accept him for that as well. That's sort of how I think of it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, my point is that, for example, let's say you you have a company or, you know, you have a team that you manage, Um, you started an enterprise and, you know, you want to bring in a healthy mix of men and women on your team. I think you got to understand those kinds of general tendencies because how do you make, you know, a team accepting and like a good environment for women if you have no idea about, you know, the fact that women tend to be more compassionate in general than men. So there's some intentionality that you can afford yourself as a leader or even in a relationship if you have a basic understanding. But I agree, it's got to be flexible, as you say. Right. And I Um, think that's one of the benefits for why you would want a mix of men and women is because I think both bring different strengths and weaknesses to the table. And you would hope, I think, data tends to show that combined you get most of the benefits and then they kind of, you know, can overcome each other's deficits. Yeah. Right. Right. And then, you know, also we know that there are different masculinities. So, you know, like a different culture, a different place, a different city, a different neighborhood, a different uh, mix of ethnicities will bring about a different idea of, you know, what masculine should look like. And if you grow up in that and you never question it, then you'll go with the herd, right? Which is where we started. And, you know, that that has some... So I think just going blindly with the herd is is very dangerous uh, in, in general. You know, this kind of brings me back to this question where we started that you said, you know, like I was saying that you're, you're somebody who wanted to break away from the herd mentality and that, you know, you, you, so, you basically used, that's what I understood, trial and error, right? Like, let me try this. Mm, that works. So I'll do more of that. So I, I was wondering, you know, we, we talk about men and we, we, we talk about just living life with meaning and satisfaction. So do you believe that there are a sets of habits that we should all consider? Or is it completely, so there's some kind of a recipe for that? Or is it more that, you know, I just have to discover my recipe and it will have nothing to do with yours? Yeah, I mean, I think that the way you put it is the best way that we should all consider certain habits, but 
doesn't mean that they're right for everybody. So, uh, you know, one of the biggest things I found with all the people I, I coach or work with is if you get good sleep, everything else gets better. You know what I mean? If you eat healthy food, everything else gets better. If you work out, everything else gets better. Maybe there's somebody for whom those things aren't true, but I haven't met them yet. So I think that there's certain habits like that that are very good. Um, I think a more meta one is just building the ability to build habits is for me, has been one of the most beneficial things. I think that's one of the most beneficial things for other people. I think traveling, uh, is, is almost universally good, you know, exposure to different cultures, understanding that, you know, people are different in different parts of the world and kind of absorbing some of that perspective if you can. Um, so I think there are a base level of habits that are good for other people, but then I think there's a lot of things I do that maybe aren't right for other people, but you know, maybe worth trying. Yeah. You know, it was sleep, you know, sleeping better, exercising better, eating better, eating healthier, you know, that's kind of a no brainer. Um, and then you mentioned one, which was building habits. How do you, how do you build habits? So I'm, I'm, I'm just curious if you were willing to share your perspective. Like, what does it take to form a habit? Yeah. So it, I'd say it varies by habit a little bit. But mm -hmm. the way I think about it is I think I have a habit once it's easier for me to do that thing than it is to not do that thing. Right? So... I drink tea every day. It's easier for me to drink tea than not to drink tea because as soon as I wake up, I think, oh, what tea should I have? But that wasn't always the case. So I think I usually work backwards where I, I try to figure out what do I want or what does somebody want three to five years from now, right? Maybe it's better connection with people. Maybe it's more money. Maybe it's better health. Maybe it's the benefits of travel, whatever it is, right? And then I try to work backwards and I think, what is a habit this person can do or that I can do that will virtually guarantee success. So I want to overshoot a little bit because I, habits take years or months or whatever to get. So I want to make sure that I know it's going to be worth it if I do it. Um, then what I want to do is I want to break it down to a daily task if I can. Sometimes it has to be weekly or something, but I found that it's much easier to get perfect adherence with a daily habit. So I try to make a daily habit. Um, one interesting thing I found through coaching is that it almost doesn't matter what that daily habit is if I can get somebody to do it perfectly for 30 days, then it's very easy for me to get them to do it perfectly for 60 days. Very easy for me to make the habit harder, do it for 90 days. And there's a, like a one-to-one -one correlation with success on that. So anytime I have a new habit, let's say I want to meditate. I'll say, I'm going to meditate for two minutes a day, every day, no matter what. Sounds so easy and so trivial, but if you can do that, it's very easy to bump it up to five, very easy to bump it up to 10. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could go on and on forever, but those are some, some basic things I think about when starting a new habit. And I'm wondering, like, if you look at your life, is there a habit that, you, you know, you recently acquired and you were, like, totally surprised at, at the effect? Like, wow, this is really giving me something I've not experienced before, and it's, it's extremely beneficial. Uh, I, I was, I was, I had a good answer until you said extremely beneficial, but, uh, yeah. So let's forget extremely beneficial, yeah. like mildly beneficial, <laughs> but mildly beneficial. I mean, I think at this point, you know, I've been in Vegas for seven months now, more or less because of COVID. So yeah, I, I've, I've been on a really good schedule that I know works for me. So I, I don't change it too much, but, uh, I did start eating. This sounds like such a trivial thing, but I started eating a little bowl of nuts every day at 4 PM. And I'm shocked at how much I enjoy it and look forward to it every day. It's such a small thing. Um, right. 
Yeah, but I think it's really cool because, you know, thinking about habits, we always have this big idea of like, you know, something dramatically different. But what if I just do something small like that and, you know, just enjoy the benefit or, you know, just learn something new? Yeah. I think it can make actually, you know, long term, it can make a big difference. Yeah. And once you have a framework, what I like to do is get to a point where I have a framework of habits. So I wake up, I drink my tea, I check my emails, check my calendar, all this kind of stuff. And then you can just add little pieces here and there to just make it 1% better, 1% better. Then all of a sudden you have like a great day every day because you've built this. So that's why the nuts thing was exciting to me is because I already had this great routine that worked perfectly for me. And I found, ah, here's a way to make it just a tiny little bit better. Mm-hmm. Love it. Love it. Um, you know, which leads me to perhaps uh, our final question, which is there's something happening in the world, which everybody talks about today. You know, like if, if you speak to someone, COVID-19 will, will come up in some shape or form. And I'm noticing that people kind of use that as, as an excuse, you know, so now because of COVID, I can't do this. I, I lost my job. I, I, you know, things don't work. I, I can't meet my friends. Yeah, I'd love to meet my friends, but I can't because it's virtual. And I know that, you know, there's got to be a lot of things that changed in your life. Like, you know, you just mentioned that you've been in Vegas for seven months. So how do you think about, you know, what's happening and, and what do you suggest people? How, how should we look at it in terms of our habits and, you know, sustainability of things that matter to us. Yeah. You, you know, it's funny. I had a friend a few months ago. He said, wow, you're, you know, your life was really impacted by COVID. And I said, oh, no, it, you know, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, well, my wife lost her job. My business is a cruise business. So that went to zero. I travel all the time. I can't travel anymore. And I thought, oh, actually, maybe I'm about as impacted as anybody's ever been. <laughs> so it was kind of interesting. that, And, and I think the big lesson here is that in any given time, you know, this is a huge change for me. It's a huge change for a lot of people. But in any given time, you can look at what you have to work with, what your skills are, what you have to avoid. You know, maybe it's travel and face-to-face meeting. And you say, okay, I'm going to accept the circumstance because I have literally no choice. I can't eradicate COVID by myself or probably even help. Um, so given the circumstances, I'm going to accept them. And then I'm going to think, what's the best thing I can do with this going forward? Right? So... I immediately started a new business, which I haven't launched yet, but I've been working on it all the time. Uh, I started some new habits. I, I thought, okay, I lost 14 pounds. I thought, or maybe 15 now. I thought, okay, this is a good opportunity for me to get a perfect workout habit. Um, my wife and I had been considering buying a house. I thought, no better time to buy a house. So we bought a house. Now I go over there and I work on the house all the time. Um, trying to think of some other things I've done. Uh, you know, and I don't worry about it. It's like my cruise business is zero. Fine. I'll work on it when it comes back. You know, my, my, my wife, her business is gone. She had the same sort of attitude where she started learning new things. Um, and it's, it's been interesting because I mean, I guess the right answer, you know, if I could undo coronavirus, I feel like I would have to do it because all these people died. I don't want them to die. But I think my personal situation is better now than it would have been if coronavirus had not happened, which is interesting because it did have a big negative impact on me. And if I ask all of my friends, they would all say the same thing. Whereas if you read what people in general are saying, most people would say their life is much worse. And again, I guess I know that this is because I do have certain benefits and certain advantages, some of which I built up myself. Maybe I built a lot of savings or a very low 
expense lifestyle. Others are things, you know, I just have a good family, good friends or whatever. But I think people don't like to accept that they have agency in these situations, right? So even if I was in a much worse situation, say, okay, that sucks. My life is getting worse. What can I do to make it better instead of feeling like I'm a victim because of it? You know, and you can be a victim, but you can still have agency and do the best you can with your circumstances. So I think that's the big lesson that I, I think people have the opportunity to learn right now. Love it. I, I completely resonate with that. You know, the same thing happened with me, like my business, which was, you know, training teams and working with organizations face-to-face, -face, completely eradicated, started something new and, and it's really exciting and I'm, I'm grateful for it. And I, I really mean to say that, you know, this is not sort of, I force myself to see the positive in it. I think there is really truly something positive in every situation. And I think this idea of the agency is, is really key. How did you figure out that agency is the most important thing in, or one of the most important things in life? I'm wondering, is there, is there a story around that? <laughs> or did you read it? Like, how does, how does one get to that point? Like, ah, I got to have agency and not to be a victim. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. I think maybe I already had some sort of bias towards that side. Maybe, uh, you know, my, how my parents raised me or how my friends were or something. But a big moment for me was I, I dropped out of college. And, you know, up until then, you know, my parents paid for, or, you know, my family paid for my education. They paid for my, my dorm or my apartment. So, uh, you know, I earned money with my own little businesses. But even if I didn't, my life was going to be fine. And I wanted to drop out of school. My parents were 100% against it. They obviously did not want me to drop out. And I, I did it without telling them. So I went to the, to the counselor or whoever it was, and I said, hey, I'd like to drop out. And they said, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to mark it as a semester off so you can always come back. And I didn't. I said, no, 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 no. I want you to make it permanent so I can't come back even if I want to because I just I don't want my parents to be able to talk me into it. And... So they thought I was crazy. They said, okay, they, 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 they unenrolled me. And I remember the walk back to my apartment. I felt great. I felt like a big burden was off my shoulders, but I also thought, okay, it's all up to me now. Like I've taken my life into my own hands. If I'm, you know, my parents aren't going to let me die on the streets, but they're going to be much less willing to help me out now that I've, you know, gone off of their plan and I've gone into mine. And so I think that, Whether it was true or not, at that point, I thought, okay, like, I got, you know, uh, I have to have agency now because I've made this big decision against the people who have supported me. Love it. So, you know, maybe we can recommend courage to people to to take big decisions and create situations where you can you can say to yourself, okay, now that I changed jobs, now that I started this new business, now that I'm beginning to take the first steps, you know, now it's all up to me. I can't blame anyone else. And that's... And I think it's worth, you know, I think most people, here's another general thing I think people should consider is, you know, we all have a comfort zone, like, you know, like here where we're very comfortable. And then there's out here where, you know, we're very uncomfortable and you want to live right on the edge of your comfort zone. Something that's, you know, that's where growth is. You feel a little bit uncomfortable, but you also feel like maybe you could rise to that challenge. Uh, I think too many people don't go in that zone ever. Um, But what I found is once people do start to go into that zone and they get a little bit of positive feedback, even sometimes when things go poorly, they just realize it wasn't as bad as they thought. Um, that can be almost as powerful as success in my experience. 
Um, and I think that that's how you build agency is you go outside of that comfort zone. You realize you did it or you, it wasn't as bad as you thought. And then you're more willing to consider things within that comfort zone. And of course, once you're more willing that, you know, your comfort zone is expanded, right? Cause you get a little bit more comfortable there. So I think that's something more people should do. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we all have different sizes of our comfort zones and, you know, maybe mine is smaller someone else is much bigger, but go towards the edge and test. Exactly. And, yeah. and, right. and your comfort zone, not somebody else's. So, you know, I think it's not often that useful to compare yourself to others, but that's one area where I think it's totally useless. It's like maybe if somebody's comfort zone is here, great. If yours is here, you know, great. Just accept it and just try to move here. Even if you're never going to get there, you know, it doesn't matter. You just want to be in that, that area where you're growing. Love it. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here and, uh, you know, sharing your thoughts and um, life is great. Let's have a cup of tea and test that the edge of the comfort zone. <laughs> cheers. All right. Cheers to that. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Please check our webpage at www.mentorship.com www.m-a-n-t-o-r shift.com. Join our newsletter and learn about the Mentorship Coaching and other services and resources we offer. Keep listening to our podcast for more inspiration and motivation.